First Peter chapter 3, verse 18 is where we pick up this morning. This summer we've been walking verse by verse through the book of First Peter, just going straight through it. I've told you many times before that uh, we love to go through books of the Bible. We don't do it all the time, but we do love to go through books of the Bible. We tend to go Old Testament book, New Testament book, Old Testament, New Testament, back and forth, and then a kind of a topical series in the middle that pertains to where we're at, like marriage or, or various things of that nature. And so we land in, in 1 Peter throughout the course of the summer, and, and, and by going through books of the Bible, it displays to you all and, and to our community that our conviction is that every single word in the Bible is inspired by God. And because we're going straight through the book, straight through it, wherever we land is what we're going to touch on and preach on. And so it forces us to go through some really difficult passages. And today we find us ourselves in one of those passages. Notoriously, uh, one of the most, if not the most difficult passage in the New Testament to interpret. And so open up your Bibles there and buckle up and we'll get right into it. And if you don't have a Bible at home, grab one of those in the seats and bring that home. Uh, for yourself. We want you to have a Bible in your house. Uh, last week, we began a, a series within the larger series on suffering. So we'll be doing four weeks on suffering. This is week number two. And, and Peter, throughout this book, has been speaking to Christians who have been scattered throughout Asia Minor, being persecuted for their faith in ways that if that had taken place in our country, in America today, the majority of half-hearted Christianity, I believe, would just be weeded out. They would just bail. And, and, and so they're just going through intense suffering. And, and last week we saw in particular that they are suffering for doing good. Now we understand when somebody suffers for making a dumb decision or suffers for, for sin, you suffer the consequence. But when we struggle because we, we feel like we've been mistreated and, and, and treated unfairly, it frustrates us. You know what I mean? When, when, when something happens to you and it just doesn't seem fair. And Peter is saying, no, 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 no. look at this. God is okay with you suffering even for doing good. And he gives them this counsel throughout chapter 3 in particular. And he tells them things like, I want you to develop a strong community, a family of believers, so that though they mistreat you out there, when you come here, when you gather with other believers, you're treated well. Mistreated out there, treated well in here. You have a family in here. He also tells them, when you are uh, paid evil towards you, don't repay evil for evil. You let God be the judge. Just leave it up to God. In fact, do the, the contrary, he says. He says, bless them. So when they're hurting you, you just, you just bless them. Do good to them. And then he says, in doing so, perhaps God might use your upright behavior in the midst of persecution to melt icy hearts. He says, so you be looking, you be ready to share the reason for the hope that you have when it doesn't make any sense why you're being so kind and gracious and, and taking the blows. You be ready when they look at you and say, what's this all about? You be ready to say, here's the reason for the hope that I have, and his name is, is Jesus. This brings us to where we land today, chapter 3, 18 through 22, and let's read it together. It says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he may bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for good conscience uh, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. 
And again, particularly verses 19 through 20, right in the middle there, are very difficult to interpret. And many theologians and scholars throughout the ages have deemed this the most difficult passage to interpret in the New Testament. Let me just give you a quote from Martin Luther on this passage. He says, A wonderful text is this, and a more obscure passage than perhaps any other in the Testament, so that I do not know for certainty just what Peter means. I cannot understand, and I cannot explain it, and there has, has been no one ever who could explain it. And so Luther says, Josh, you don't stand a chance. And so in that case, you're dismissed, and we'll just go home. Now, God has something for us today, and we want to seek to uncover it. been very prayerful about this this week. In fact, what I should do is I should give you the, the big idea from the text up front so that as we move into the uncertainties, the intention and the heart behind the passage is not lost. And so one thing that we can do to discover the big idea here is you look at the surrounding verses before and after to see just what is Peter up to. And so if you want to, want to look at verse 17 of chapter 3 with me, and then we'll go to chapter 4, verse 1. Verse 17, he says, For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. And so he says, sometimes it is God's will that that Christians should suffer when they do nothing wrong. Instead, on the contrary, like he's been counseling them to do, they do what is right, and yet they still suffer. And then he moves into verse 18. He says, For Christ also suffered. That, that word for will tell us that, that Peter is going to explain why we are to suffer. And he says, because Christ has suffered. You're following Christ, and if he suffered, you should expect to be like your leader. You are Christians. Christ is in your name, and you should be like your Lord. And it seems to be his intention throughout the rest of the paragraph to give us support for the necessity of our suffering, as he says in in verse 17. Now, at the other end of the passage, if you want to look at chapter 4, verse 1, he says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves in the same way of, of thinking. And so he says, arm yourselves with this kind of thinking. And what kind of thinking is he talking about? He's talking about the thinking of verses 18 through 24, our Difficult passage here. And so as ambiguous as they may be to to us, Peter is using today's passage to support the truth that we as Christians will suffer even when we do nothing wrong. But here's some encouragement is what Peter is giving us. Later in chapter 4, verse 12, he, he says this. He says, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you as though something strange were happening to you. And so as followers of Christ, we, we want to be like Jesus. We must expect as normative to suffer like Christ. And so when you dream and pray about God's will for your life, we're always praying, God, show me your will for my life. You need to dream and you need to pray expectant of pain and loss and suffering and difficulty. And dream and pray that God will get you to the other side, still walking with him, having suffered very well. Verse 18, for Christ also suffered. You want to walk with him, you're going to suffer. I mean, tell me, how do we miss this in American Christianity? As we read the Bible, how do we miss this? Let me just give you a sampling. I took some down this week. Luke chapter 9, 23. And he, Jesus, said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross, his execution tool, 
that they killed him with. If you want to come after me, take up your cross, take up your electric chair, and follow me daily. Matthew 16, 25, he says, whoever will lose his life for my sake will find it. Romans 8, 17, we are his children, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, 5, we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings. Abundantly. Hebrews 13, 12 through 13, Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify people through his blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach that he endured. Jesus suffered outside of the city, Golgotha. Let us go and do likewise. How do we miss it in the scriptures? Suffering is normative for for Christians. It just so happens to be that we live in this 230-year window of independence in this corner of the globe where it's easy but know this that suffering as christians is not rare the ease that we experience today in america as christians that's rare historically speaking we have got it made suffering is normative for christians all over the globe and all over our history books and maybe you're thinking well josh if you're trying to convince me to be a christian you're not doing a very good job at all And that's why evangelism for Christians is an impossible task. Or should be an impossible task. We get so good at selling our Christian faith. We go to classes and learn how to do this and this and this and then drill it home and bring them in. We get so good at it. But evangelism is an impossible task apart from the deep working of God, the Holy Spirit, deep within the hearts and souls of people. It blows my mind time and time again where I'm preaching my heart out or I'm, I'm praying for people and telling them about Jesus. And I just, sometimes I leave, that was so clear, and yet they don't want Jesus. And then one day they come up to me like, oh, on my own, I was reading my Bible, I just gave my life to Jesus. I'm like, what? It was God, the Holy Spirit. He doesn't need me, but I'm going to preach and I'm going to proclaim and you're going to do the same. It's an impossible task apart from the Holy Spirit because we're calling people as Bonhoeffer said, to come and to die. We're calling people to a very difficult life, according to what the Scripture says is normative. Suffering is normative because the Christian faith is exclusive, and people don't like exclusive. Today, exclusive is offensive. When Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, no one comes to the Father but by me, that's a hard sell, right? Because we want everybody to be able to get in pretty easy. So it's not, it's not, it doesn't work like that. I've gave, given you one clear way, and our culture doesn't like that. The way is Jesus. And people have got to want Jesus, not comfort. A lot of people, I'm going to come to faith because I want to get to heaven. If your heaven is not Jesus, then you're going after the wrong thing. But when you get there and you say, yes, I'm willing for that because I, I just want Jesus, and you're ready to take up your cross and follow Christ. First Peter is about, about hope. He opens with the fact that you have a secure inheritance awaiting for you in eternity. It is undefiled. It is imperishable. Nobody can crush this because God himself stands guard over it. And so press on. This is an amazing book that he gives us. Hope in the midst of persecution. 
And so why would I want this? Why would I want this kind of faith? If following Christ means that suffering is normative, why would I want that? What do I need to understand? Why is it worth suffering even when I'm doing good? And, and, and Peter gives us four things, I believe, here. And I just want to give these to you if you want to take some notes. Here's the first as we ask the question, why? The first is that Christ brought us to God. Christ brought us to God. Look at, look at verse 18 again. It says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. This verse 18 is an amazing verse. It is this packed, concise, dense gospel verse worthy of your memorization that God, Jesus, suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God having been put to death. And so let's, let's break this down a little bit here. Christ suffered once for sins. This has also been translated, Christ died for sins. We need to remember that Christ was not a victim. He wasn't a, a victim, a martyr. He was murdered, had his life taken from him. No, that's not Jesus. Jesus laid down his life. That's why when he was hanging on the cross, they mocked him and said, well, if you're God, come on down off that cross. He didn't hop off the cross because he was up to something, wasn't he? He knew exactly what he was doing, predestined before the foundations of the world that he would come and lay down his life to save his people from sin. He didn't hop off the cross because he was doing something. He was on a rescue mission, coming into our our mess to rescue us from the grip of Satan and sin and death because he comes into the mess and though we're in the mess because of our sin, he lives perfectly the life we could never live, undeserving the wages of sin, which is death, but yet he died. He did all these amazing miracles. You don't think he could have avoided death? They tried to kill him earlier in his ministry, at the beginning of his ministry, in his hometown. He just slipped through the crowds miraculously. He could do that, but it was time. He knew what he was doing. He was doing something very important. He was paying the ransom on our lives. Verse 18 also says, righteous for unrighteousness. It's his righteousness for our unrighteousness. The theologians of old have called this the, the great exchange, that he is our substitute. Jesus is our substitute. So that when we suffer, you need to know that it's not because God's wrath is upon you as a Christian. That's not it at all. God's wrath is not upon you because when he looks at you, he sees righteousness because Jesus has been substituted for you eternally. Righteous for the unrighteous. And so now God looks at you and sees you as righteous. And so when you're suffering, it's not God's wrath upon you. It may be him disciplining you as sons, as he tells you. I have a talk often with my, my oldest son who likes to, you know, talk his way out of discipline. <laughs> and I try to tell him, I'm doing this because I love you. He cannot get that. You mean to tell me because you love me? You... Yes. And it doesn't make sense. And I totally remember the exact same arguments as a kid. But know this, I do it because I love him. And we get it, but he doesn't get it. If you want to help me explain and give an outsider perspective, I'd be really grateful for that. But God's wrath is not upon you when you suffer as a Christian. It's normative. Because of righteousness for unrighteousness, you are, you are free from the wrath of God. And notice, he says Jesus did this once for sins. Once for sins. He is the perfect substitution. Listen to me. In very Catholic New England, let me tell you something. We do not do penance 
That is not the gospel whatsoever. From time to time, I get a, a phone call in the church office, and it'll be somebody who's struggling financially. And they'll say, um, can, can the church pay my electricity bill? My lights are about to get shut off. And it, it, just if you can pay this one bill, you know, help us out here, we, we can get back on it and catch up and, and, and pay the rest. Now, understand that that's not how the gospel works, that, that Jesus paid for our sin, got us started, and then we just keep paying for our sin by doing penance. That's not it whatsoever. No, the song goes, Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin left a crimson stain, but he washed me forever white as snow. Christ died once for sin. It's all done. It's all taken care of. When he he hung on the cross and he cried out with a loud voice, it is finished. And the rocks shook. And that thick curtain in the temple that was separating the the holy place from the most holy place, the, the, the people from the presence where God dwelt. When that happened, he said, it is finished. The curtain ripped into And now access is completely made. He has brought us to God. The curtain that separates us is no more. Jesus died once for sin, the righteous for unrighteous. And he brings us to God. So for those of us who trust in him, there is no more separation. It was the end of the Jewish sacrificial system because Jesus died once for sin. John the baptizer calls him who? Calls him, hold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so the sacrificial system was no more because Jesus, the perfect sacrifice, died once and for all. Hebrews chapter 9, listen to 12 through 14. He, Jesus, entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serving the living God. Do you hear the comparison there of the Old Testament sacrificial system to today? That God's people had this messy, gory, endless sacrificial system of paying for their sin by shedding of blood. It was disgusting. It was awful. It was over and over. And you felt like you could never catch up and you're always paying for your sin. You're always doing penance. But as we sung earlier, it is finished. Jesus says it is finished. He puts an end to our need to constantly try to make up for your sin. If you're a Christian, you're going to keep struggling with sin. You don't have to keep making up for it, trying to pay back God. No amount of personal sacrifice will pay God back. No amount of penance can pay God back. No amount of church attendance can pay God back. No amount of sacraments can pay God back. Jesus paid the permanent sacrifice. And for a suffering church, Peter's just reminding them of the the gospel, that Jesus has brought you back to God It is finished. It is secure. There's victory in that. And so while you're being persecuted and beat up for your faith and you're losing people, they're dying, you're having property stripped from you, being kicked out of your home, let me tell you something. You'd be reminded that God humbled himself, became a man, gave his life as a sacrifice. And if you placed faith in him, you'd be, uh, you've been brought back to God for all eternity. And the suffering in light of all of that is just a little 
just a blip on the radar screen of eternity. It's small compared, so you can't endure. See how he encourages them? The second thing we need to understand is that Christ and his followers are victorious. This is, this is important. Christ and his followers are victorious. Verses 19 through 21. And this is where it gets a little fuzzy, even for the theologians. He says, In which he went, Jesus, and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. So Peter gives us this illustration about how, how, how Jesus is, is going to proclaim something, somewhere, to someone, at some time, and that's what we have to, to figure out. It says that he went to proclaim to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited on them in the days of Noah. Now, this is, this is really difficult. But for some reason, Peter knew that this would be a strong illustration for his readers in this time period in that particular language. But for us, it's a bit unclear. It's been said to, to guys like myself as preachers that if you're a preacher and you have to explain your illustration, it's no good. You should just give your illustration and it's there. And so Peter doesn't explain the illustration. He gives us the illustration. His readers got it and it's kind of fuzzy. Similar, it'd be like me standing up here and saying, church, the Bible is our GPS. You'd be like, okay, got that. I got that illustration. But if I had to say, well, let me tell you about a GPS, what it actually does, it'd be kind of overkill, right? Shouldn't have to illustrate my illustration. But for those people, it would have been really unclear. The Bible is a GPS? What is that? What is he talking about? GPS? That's, what is that? It's, it's an illustration that he gives that for us is a bit unclear. There are some uncertainties. And I want to give you three possibilities. I'll let you know where I kind of lean. But I'll say this humbly. I could be wrong on this one. Because theologians through the ages are all over the map. When I get stuck while I'm studying and preparing a sermon, I have a handful of guys that I'll go to that just trusted theologians, trusted scholars. So this week I said, I'll go to these guys. And they all had different perspectives. And I said, oh, now what do I do? You know? I'll roll the dice or I'll just pray hard. And I prayed hard. And so there are three possibilities. Here, here's possibility number one, is that the spirits that he's talking about Jesus proclaiming to are fallen angels, that is, demons, who had been cast into hell until the final judgment. That's option number one. Option number two is that the spirits are unsaved human spirits from the days of Noah, and then option number three, uh, a few would say that, that Christ went to humans, human spirits in hell, in order to offer another opportunity for salvation, kind of like purgatory. And that third one is completely contrary to numerous other scriptures throughout the Bible that say that hell is a permanent place. Luke chapter 16, 26, Jesus talks about a great chasm that has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to there, you may not be able, and none may cross from there. In other words, it's completely permanent. So option number three is out with regards to orthodoxy. It's extra biblical. It wouldn't be true. So we spend our time on options number one and option number two. Possibility number one is that these spirits are fallen angels, that they are, are demons that have been cast into hell until the final judgment, that they were alive and roaming 
in the days of Noah, and they made such a mess of the world that God said, I'm done with this. He puts them into a prison, to Hades. And we know that, that for the time being, there are demons that run free according to the scriptures. You read all about them in the days of, of Jesus walking the earth, that there are demons that run free. But this perspective says that, that God locked up some of the demons from the days of Noah because they made such a mess of things. He said, I'm done with you. I'm in control, boom, and he just completely locks him up and says, we're, we're done with you, and then you will be eradicated in the last days. Genesis chapter 6, verses 2 through 4 talks about the days of Noah, and it refers to the sons of God coming into women, sons of God. And so some would suggest here that, that these are angels, fallen angels, demons, who have come into women, had relations with women. They have children and, and that then Genesis chapter 6 refers to them, their children, as mighty men, men of renown, some kind of super race of, of, of sorts. Some would also say that, that these demons were coming into the human line and were trying to, to mess up God's redemptive plan of salvation, beginning with Adam through Christ and the lineage there. And so they tried to get in there and, and thwart that. Regardless of all of that, all of the mess that they made, they'd be wiped out with the great flood anyhow. But Jesus... According to this perspective, God locked them up. Jude chapter 1, uh, verses 6 and 7 say this. Just listen to this. This is interesting support for this view. It says, And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, so the distinction between humans and angels, but left their proper dwelling. They left it and they came into women. He has kept in eternal chains until, under gloomy darkness until the day of judgment, the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, served as an example, undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. And so these spirits could potentially be demons who were so perverse and entered where they were not to enter that God says, I'm done, puts them in a prison until the last day, the final judgment, when they will be eradicated. And that Jesus went to those demons between the cross and the resurrection, and he goes to them, and he declares victory over them. You tried to mess up my plan. You tried to get into the lineage, but I just delivered. I just died once for all. I've died for sin. And so he taunts them as they're having a party because they've killed Jesus on the cross, and he comes and says, oh, no, don't celebrate too soon. I'm here, and it's over for you. And so that perspective for you as a Christian says, Victory is yours. Yeah, you're going to be taunted, but nothing can thwart God's plan. And be reminded of that. Some support for this perspective includes, uh, number one, that in the New Testament, spirits seems to always be used for supernatural beings, not for people. And so if we hear the phrase spirits, support for this, you would say, well, then we're speaking of supernatural beings, demons here, angels that are fallen. Number two that the word prison in the Bible is never used for human, only of Satan and demons. So that's some support for that first possibility of the, the two there. Here's, here's the second possibility, and it's much more simple. That the, the spirits in this passage here are unsaved human spirits in the days of Noah. And Jesus is preaching through Noah like an, a pre-incarnate Christ. And since they didn't listen, 
They were killed by God's judgment, the the great flood. And, and, And now the spirits are in prison because they formerly did not obey. Does that make sense? And, and I kind of lean that way, that, that Jesus is speaking through Noah. And here's why. Back in, in Peter, uh, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 11, it says this. It says, the spirit of Christ in them. That's the Old Testament prophets. Remember when we went through the section, we talked about the perspective that we have, that the Old Testament prophets long to have, but now that we're on this side of the cross. Remember that passage that we looked at? That's this passage. The spirit of Christ in them, the Old Testament prophets, was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent Glories, And so we know from this previous writing in this book that Peter's already thinking about Jesus speaking through men in the Old Testament. And so I tend to think that Peter's just kind of continuing this similar language and he's saying here that it was Jesus speaking again through an Old Testament prophet of sorts. Later in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, Peter refers again to Noah and he says, Noah is a herald of righteousness. He's proclaiming righteousness. And so Peter says Jesus speaking through Noah to proclaim repentance and faith in God's provision, which was an ark so that people didn't die by the great flood, but they didn't listen. And so they mocked Noah and his family, all eight of them, and they were a persecuted minority. But they lived because of the ark. You see how this would encourage Peter's readers by giving them this perspective again the perspective is this that christ and his followers are victorious you might be a persecuted minority you might be the only one in your workplace living for the lord you might be the only one in your family living for the lord you might be the only one in your hall living for the lord you might be the only one in your neighborhood living for the lord you might stand alone often you might get mocked all the time but be reminded that so did noah and he was the only one who survive. Very difficult passage. So let's review our our bigger points so far. The first point being Christ brought us to God. That's encouraging. You are secure in that. The next one being that, that Christ and his followers are victorious. You are victorious. Even though you're in the middle of it, you're going to be victorious in the very end because Jesus is victorious. And now number three, what we need to understand in order to endure suffering is that Christ's salvation is gracious and it's certain. It's, it's certain. Look at verses 20 through 21. 20 through 21. Because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So what do we hear about God here? We hear that God was patient with the people in the days of Noah. He was patient with them. I used to, I used to struggle, to be honest, a little bit with the story of, of Noah. Felt like, read that, it seems like God's kind of the sensitive guy, he's a ticking time bomb, and then he just unleashes, and they're just all wicked, and just flood them and end it. And Peter says, no, no, that's not how it was. God was patient with them. How long did it take Noah to build an ark? 100 years? Time and time again, we read in the Bible that he is slow to anger. He's abounding in loving kindness. He's not this easily frustrated giant that just wants to end it all every now and again. He just gets to the end of his fuse. No, he's patient. 
He's patient. We see that God is, is gracious, though. He's giving us time and time and time again, chance after chance after chance to turn and place faith in him. That's our God. But be reminded that the flood did eventually come. And so some of us have been around for a while. We've been toying with the idea of this whole Jesus thing. We like hanging out with the church family. But you just maybe keep saying, I'm not ready yet. I'm not yet. I'm not ready to give my life to Jesus. I'm not, I'm not there yet. Maybe, I don't know, this Jesus thing kind of seems to cramp my style. I don't know. But be reminded of the urgency that a day will come. The flood will come, and we have to sort this out. We have to sort this out. He's being gracious, but we've got to sort this out. For those of you who have, you trusted in Jesus as the only way that there's one door into the ark for salvation. There's one way that is Jesus Christ today. And he's your hope, and, and that's for certain. You can be certain that you're in because you've trusted in the one way. Again, do you see how this is encouraging to, to a suffering, suffering Christian? Now, one more piece of controversy, if you haven't had enough already. He talks about baptism in verse 20. And let's, let's just check it out one more time here. Or 21, baptism, which corresponds to this now, saves you. Wow, really? That's not what we teach here at the church. Baptism saves you? Well, here's the thing. First of all, when we read Scripture, we don't take it isolated. We take it with all the other Scriptures in the, in the Bible. And then we need to take the context around it. We believe that, that baptism is not that which saves you. Baptism is a picture of what God has already done in your heart. So, for example, last night at the wedding, after the couple made the vows and were married in God's eyes, we then did the ring portion of the ceremony. They put the ring on the fingers. And I said, this is a symbol of the commitment that you just made to each other. You're already committed to each other. This is a symbol of that. It reminds you. And that's what baptism is. That's, that's what we believe. We believe that, that when we are, are baptized, that the, the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus is pictured. That's why we baptize by immersion, right? That's how, we, that's how we do it. Now, we know that Peter didn't think that people were saved by baptism. Let me, let me tell you uh, just a story. Acts chapter 10, verse 44, G, uh, Peter is, is preaching, uh, continuing the ministry of Jesus, and it says this. It says, while Peter was still saying these things, he's preaching, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word, and they were saved, they were converted, they were Christians, that all took place. They the Holy Spirit fell upon them. And then verse 47 goes on and says, Peter asks, he says this, he says, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have, like already have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? In other words, they're Christians, let's baptize them. And that's constantly the order as we read throughout the New Testament. The people come to faith in Jesus and then they're baptized. They come to faith in Jesus and then they're baptized. It's not that they're baptized in view of salvation. It's they come to faith in Jesus and they are baptized and baptism never saves anyone that's why in verse 21 if you just think that did peter just say baptism saves somebody in verse 21 he quickly clarifies he says this listen carefully he says baptism which corresponds to this now save you now here comes the clarification not as a removal of dirt from the body but as an appeal to god for a good conscience through the resurrection of jesus christ did you hear that he says no 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 don't don't be confused though this isn't some kind of ritual cleansing that makes you right with God. Rather, it's an appeal to God 
for good conscience. So when you appeal to God for the forgiveness of sins through Jesus, he says. What's Peter's point? His point is, Christians, you can suffer well because your baptism is a reminder of your faith in God and that you are secure in Christ and your baptism will constantly serve as a moment in time that portrays to you that you have nailed it down. You are in the boat. You have gone through the one way, truth, life, Jesus. And he says, and it corresponds to what? Corresponds to Noah. That's interesting. Baptism corresponds to Noah where God's judgment came upon people by water except for the eight who trusted in God. And for the Christian, when the waters of baptism come, and that's why we believe baptism is baptism of immersion. The word baptize, baptizo, means to immerse. And you go under, and the water covers your head, and it covers under your toes, and all the way, all of you, you do not die because you are baptized in Christ. And he saves you, much like when Noah's family were baptized by water, and water came from the sky, as it just let loose the atmosphere, just dumped rain on them, but also from below, and the, the water collected throughout the, the world broke open and rose up from the ground from head to toe. They were covered, but they had gone through that one door, and they were saved, though they were submerged. And so we, when the judgment comes and baptism pictures our death, We resurrect to life because of Jesus, that we die to self and we die to live for for Christ. And so suffering Christians, you can suffer well because you know in the end you're saved. And that is certain. That is completely certain that God has been good and gracious to you and you are secure and you have a picture of baptism to remind you of that. Here's our last point for today, just real quick. Number four, Christ is in control. You've got to be reminded of that. Look at verse 22. Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. And so he says, Jesus has gone into heaven. He's not here like the priest of old, just continually making sacrifices for sin. No, it is finished. And now he is at the right hand of the fathers. And other scriptures will tell us he's not just at the right hand of the father, but he is seated at the right hand of the father, showing us that it is finished. He is done. Kicking up his feet. He has done it, secured once and for all. And angels and authorities and powers have been subjected to him. Past tense. They have been subjected to him. So you're feeling right now that they've got the upper hand, that they're on you, that the powers around you are, are, are oppressive towards you. Just be reminded, Jesus is already done and he has been victorious and all are subject to Christ. He's in control and all of the suffering that you're facing, it will come and go and before you know it, you're going to be with him for all eternity. For all eternity. Because he's in control and he's already, he's already nailed it down. And so Christians, I'm praying that throughout all of this, you've heard the tone of Peter. His heart in this very unique passage is to encourage you as you suffer, which is normative. This is Peter 
who himself personally heard Jesus say, one of the last things he heard Jesus say, John 16, 33, Jesus said, in this world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And Jesus being close to Peter, and Peter being close to Jesus, just wants to convey that to his people. Take heart, he's overcome the world, he's in control. It might be hard, but if God is in you and you are in God because you've exercised faith, not because you've earned your way, but because you've exercised faith, you are made right with God. It's an encouragement for us as Christians, isn't it? And if you're not a Christian, you have yet to trust in the Lord Jesus. I pray that you hear from, from Peter too. That you don't hear this easy believism kind of Christianity that you just show up to church and you're right with God. That's not how it works. But you hear it is a hard road, but it is worth it. Because you have been brought to God by the blood of Jesus who has died for you. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. My life. No matter how hard it gets. Because he died for me. And so if you're not a Christian, the call to you is to turn from your sin and turn to him. And say, I need you as my substitution. And you exercise faith and you trust in him. And something amazing is happening in your heart should you do that. And it's that deep working of the Holy Spirit that I'm telling you about. And there are people, many of you in this room, who you know it well. It made no sense to me. But one day, man, it just made sense and it was irresistible. And that's how this takes place. I'm not going to sit here and try to make it palatable for you. The Holy Spirit does that work in your heart. And so I'm going to pray to that end. Father, Would you do that work in the hearts of men and women today, children alike, who don't know Jesus? I pray that they wouldn't be able to resist him any longer. That they would see the beauty of this whole thing, that our faith is unlike any other faith system out there. Seems like all the others say you've got to work hard enough to impress God and maybe you'll be good with him. Maybe you'll be made right with him. But you tell us we can't impress you. But Jesus does because he lived perfectly the life we couldn't live and he died the death we deserve as our substitution so that if we trust in him, we're made right. Help people to turn to Jesus today. May they in their own words call out to you and say, I'm coming to you, Lord, because you came to me and brought me back saying yes. And for Christians who need encouragement today, God, I commit them into your hands. Give them what they need through this passage. Thank you that there is a promise that your word does not return void. So I commit them to you, Father. Encourage our hearts throughout the remainder of our gathering and be glorified in all that we do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.